Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and uh, welcome, uh, Grace Community family and friends. Welcome to the Lewa campus. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, we are just absolutely delighted you're here on this uh, beautiful spring morning. One of the most amazing and unforgettable experiences in my life, truly, beyond anything almost I can ever think of, was the birth of our two children. Of course, I didn't have a lot to do with that, uh, but I was vicariously there. I want you to know it, and I was a terrible coach. But I'll never forget taking our firstborn child home from the hospital. As a parent, you can understand this. Our precious cargo, little Schaefer, all wrapped up, tucked in, went home from Baylor Hospital, and yes, I found myself traversing the busy Dallas streets with our small little economy car, so longing for a Brinks security truck. <laughs> if you've ever been there, you know that it was a white-knuckle drive, a cold December day, and any car that got close to us, as a newborn dad or a new dad, it was like they were an ominous threat. But the good news is, in spite of my anxiety and fear, we made it home, white knuckles and all, to our home, and we brought Schaefer in the door, unscathed and unscraped. And I'll never forget walking through that door, I realized for the first time that we had entered a new world, the new world called parenthood. It is a world of great adventure, of course, but I realized at that moment, as a new dad, it was a world of sobering responsibility. Somehow at that moment, with this new birth, we realized we were now in a new world that had changed our lives forever. And over the years, I have chatted with many new parents. Maybe recently you've experienced that or you remember what that's like if you're a parent. And I have discovered that my experience as a new dad taking Schaefer home from the hospital is experienced by people all around the globe. Uh, it's not only the anxious first drive, it is the first night with that new kid in the house. What do you do? There is a sublimely joyous experience, but a jarring reality that meets us anytime we encounter a new world. Now, maybe you've not had the experience of being a new dad or mom or a new parent, but my hunch is that each one of us this morning has experienced this eye-opening moment in your life where you are ushered into a new world. Now, it may be the first day of school, in a new school. I remember that in my life. It may be a new job. It may be becoming, I hear it's a good gig, a new grandparent. Not there yet. Or adopting a child. Or traveling to a far-off land you've never seen before. It's an eye-opening experience. Now, with that backdrop, the New Testament 
tells us that becoming a Christian is an eye-opening experience. When we embrace the good news of the gospel, it is not only our hearts that are changed, our eyes are open to a vast new world. It is the new world of Jesus, our risen king. Last week, if you were here on Easter Sunday, we explored the empty tomb and why it matters to our lives. As we peered into the empty tomb, we learned that the empty tomb points to three eye-opening, life-changing truths. A love that never fails, a life that never ends, and work that really matters. On the heels of these three eye-opening, life-changing truths is a fourth truth that we're going to explore this morning. The empty tomb points us to a new mission. A mission that summons our wholehearted commitment. Everything we are and everything we have. But what is this new mission? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the last chapter, chapter 28. It's the first book in the New Testament. Now, as a church family, we've been exploring for a long time. I hope it hasn't seemed that long. I guess it was told to us in our teaching team meeting, 56 weeks we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. It's been quite an exploration for me, and I trust for you. And today we come to the ultimate crescendo of its literary trajectory. It is the grand crescendo of this whole story. That's why it's really important we listen well this morning. Now let's recall that Matthew's big literary thesis of the entire book is that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And inseparably tied to this bold truth claim is King Jesus' bold new mission. In Matthew chapter 16, we hear Jesus' very own words that now will echo to us in the last words recorded to us by Matthew. We must not miss this because they are inseparably tied. Jesus looks at his disciples And says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But what does King Jesus and what does his bold mission mean for you and me, for us? That's the question that Matthew answers in his literary crescendo. Here in chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, I want us to discover what King Jesus' bold mission means for us. And there are at least three essential things all of us must grasp. First, we will see it is a compelling purpose we have been given. Secondly, a dynamic strategy. And third, a supernatural empowerment. So this text flows like this. A compelling purpose, a dynamic strategy to accomplish that purpose, and supernatural empowerment to do that. Got it? So here we go. First, a compelling purpose. As we enter back into chapter 28, we need to set the literary context. After encountering the empty tomb, the two Marys, if we were here last week, are instructed, you remember, by the angelic messenger to go and tell Jesus' disciples. And they do just that. In fact, they skedaddle fast. They sprint. They sprint from the empty tomb, and they are stopped dead in their tracks by the resurrected, bodily resurrected Jesus. They fall down at his nail-scarred feet, and Jesus instructs them to go tell his disciples, his inner group, to make their way back to Galilee where he will meet them there. So beginning in verse 16, if you have your text open, 
Matthew then scoots forward several days and picks up where he left off in the story. Now, Jesus' inner circles, inner circle, uh, make their way to Galilee, and sure enough, the resurrected Jesus shows up. And Matthew captures for us, friends, this heart-arresting moment when they collectively meet the resurrected Jesus. Verse 17 is key. Notice the text. And when they saw him, that is Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, this word doubt may raise some hackles in your mind and heart because it doesn't seem appropriate here. What does doubt mean? And it's really not a big deal. In fact, it's illuminating if we understand what the text is teaching. We have to go back to the original Greek word that is translated to English, and it's hard to translate Greek to English all the time in one-to-one correspondence. It's true of Hebrew as well. But here in verse 17, this Greek word does not convey willful unbelief. Let me say that again. It does not convey willful unbelief. Rather, what Matthew is saying is a kind of hesitant uncertainty. Uh, This Greek word actually is only used twice in the whole New Testament. It's used by Matthew exclusively with his literary flair. And earlier in chapter 14, if you want to look at it later, it describes Peter's hesitancy as he walks on the water and begins to doubt and starts to sink. So it's the picture of entering into a new world territory and being uncertain how to respond. And this is what's happening here. There's no question that Jesus is bodily raised from the dead. Nobody's questioning that. The question is, how are they to respond to this new world? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, The Message, uh, often gets things brilliantly right. And of course, Eugene knocks it out of the park here. He writes in his paraphrase, listen, the moment, the very moment they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. Some, though, here's the word, held back, not sure about worshipping him, but risking themselves fully. See, Matthew is highlighting the paradigm-shattering moment of these men, these Jewish, devout, monotheistic men encountering undiminished deity and what to do about it. This is new world stuff. And they are not sure how to respond. So Jesus, again, not in any self-absorbed way, it was evident with his resurrected body, now his focus, and Matthew focuses, how Jesus describes himself. As if they need help. There's a bit of humor actually here. You'll notice in verse 18, if you're following on the text, Jesus reminds his disciples with their hesitancy and uncertainty just who he is. He's saying, okay guys, I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. All reality, seen and unseen, both universal and earthly, respond to every moment of my command. The 19th century Dutch prime minister and brilliant Christian who wrote so well about so many things, and I commend his writings to you, is Abraham Kuyper. I believe he had Jesus' words in mind when he is summarized who Jesus is in one of the most memorable statements of the Christian church. Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's exactly what this text is saying. 
Jesus is telling his disciples, guys, every square inch, every atom, all reality are subject to my kingly reign I am bringing into the universe that has been compromised because of Satan's corruption. The Apostle Paul would later say to the Colossians, all things were created by Jesus through him and for him. And beginning in verse 19 now, as you follow the flow of the text, is what we have many church people call the Great Commission. But it is truly great because of our king's great mission, and it's truly great because it is at the very core, hear me carefully, of the local church's compelling purpose in the world and why we exist in time and space. Nothing that this purpose is given, no, nothing else is given as the core purpose of the church. Nothing else. Notice this promise and purpose is given to the 11 disciples as a group. You see how the text begins. It is the 11. That's not incidental. It is a collective purpose and mission that, of course, has individual responsibility and implications. I'm not minimizing that. But its primary thrust in the text is the collective mission of the church. Matthew's focus here on the 11 disciples receiving this collective mission must not be separated as it is so often done to absolutely vandalize Matthew's progression to separate it from Matthew 16's text that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They are inseparably tied. Here in verse 19, we find the church's compelling purpose. It is found grammatically in the main verb that carries the entire weight of the commission. Okay, the great meaning. It is the imperative verb. I'm not being pedantic here, but it's really important to grasp the logic. The main verb is in an imperative form, and it is a sense of to make disciples. That's at the very core of the king's mission in the world. But what is a disciple raises the question, right? What is a disciple? This word in the original Greek text is translated in many ways in English. It can be translated student, follower, or apprentice. But I want to suggest to you that apprenticeship is probably the best current English translation. Because it connotes for us more than the attaining of information. It means sharing intimate life together that leads to whole life transformation. Means becoming like the person you are apprenticed to. See, what Jesus has in mind at the core of the church's purpose is not a mystery. He has already articulated in his great invitation to become apprentice, which was found earlier in Matthew's progression, building to this point in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. I want to read that again. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember, rest is back to Genesis. It's the life God had for us before we fell into sin. So Rabbi Jesus goes right back to Genesis. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The easy idea here is it fits you perfectly. 
See, when we enter Jesus' yoke of apprenticeship, we enter a vast new world. It is a world, you'll notice he says, come to me. It is a world first of growing intimacy with the risen Jesus. It is a new world of learning, relearning, and unlearning. It is a new world where Jesus teaches us both his precepts and his practices. It is a new world where we learn to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. A new world where we learn to live our lives comprehensively like Jesus would if he were us. So Jesus is saying to the 11 disciples that his church is first and foremost to be about a global disciple-making enterprise. All nations, all ethnic groups, literally. Wherever the local church is, at the very core of its purpose is making apprentices of Jesus. That's core. That's people like you and me. People like you and me who have embraced the grace-filled good news of the cross. And out of that gospel transformation, with gratitude and awe, we now enter Jesus' yoke of apprenticeship. The cross and the yoke are connected. From the inception of Christ's community, we have had a mission that reflects the risen king's mission. And that is to make disciples. From the very beginning, 29 years ago, Christ's community's mission is to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, make disciples, multiplying disciples is at the core of what we've always been about. Our commitment to be a quiet catalyst, to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches is having a growing influence on thousands of lives in our city, our nation, and globe. This pleases our risen king. But I also believe the most fruitful days ahead are ahead of us. But we must not waver from our core mission. Our greatest threat is mission drift from making disciples. Entrusted with the king's risen mission, the church has been given a compelling purpose to make disciples on a global basis. But secondly, notice, the church has also been given a dynamic strategy to accomplish this mission. And this is the second essential thing to grasp in this text. A dynamic strategy. Notice with me, if you're following along in your text or listening carefully, I pray this morning, the main verb in verses 19 through 20 is surrounded by three clarifying participles. It's not meant to be a grammar lesson. It's meant to say how important these connections are. Participles reinforce the meaning of the main verb. And the three are going, translated, baptizing, and teaching. So what is Jesus saying here? These three words, going, teaching, or baptizing and teaching, assume something that is important for us not to miss. They are embedded, ensconced in a local church community where the maturing of apprentices of Jesus must and will take place. By Jesus' very design, 
the local church is uniquely designed to storm the gates of hell itself and accomplish Christ's redemptive mission for the world. The local church does not always live fully into that mission. I am aware of that. And that should call us to repentance and renewal. But there is no plan B in Holy Scripture. When we hear the word going, what do we think about? If you come from my tradition, most of us probably thought of going as, if you're really committed to Jesus, you go to some place across the globe as a cross-cultural missionary. Or maybe if you're really spiritual, you go to seminary. <laughs> and those are important callings. Don't miss it. But that's not the focus of this text. These are good things and important things. The focus is not here on Jesus saying, pull up your stakes and move somewhere to serve Jesus. It is being an apprentice of Jesus right where God has you now. Tomorrow, this week. A better translation of this participle is as you are going. That's a better translation of the Greek text. In other words, as we are going through the regular rhythms of our lives, our callings of home and work and play, we are to bring the good news of the gospel by both our words and our actions to others. So going here is first and foremost about vocational faithfulness, what Jesus describes in his Sermon on the Mount as being salt and light as the scattered church in the world. As a scattered church on Monday, wherever you and I are called, we influence our surroundings with the risen Christ's presence and mission in the world. If you have trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you are following him, you are on mission with Jesus. Not just on Sunday, but 24-7 on Monday through Saturday. Your workplace, whether it is paid or not paid, is of great importance. For a primary work of the church is the church at work, where we spend a vast majority of our time. Second word is the word baptizing, the second participle. This is very important to understand what's going on here. When many of us hear the word baptizing, we may think about our own baptism. If you're a, not a Christian yet and you're here this morning, you may think that's kind of strange. You know, either sprinkle water on somebody or dunk them under. I've had people say, well, whatever. But it's not a whatever for a follower of Jesus. Baptism is vitally important. But what does it mean? And what does it mean in this text? The idea of baptizing in its etymology and its context does refer to an outward act identifying an inward change. But the central idea of baptism is conversion to a brand new identity. A new identity. Not only a new individual identity as now being in Christ, but a collective identity as being part of Jesus' church. Baptism not only declares gospel conversion, but our identification with belonging to a local church he has called us to. Jesus' use of this word in the context implies the importance of what we might call evangelism. Evangelism. It's a tough word today. A vital part of any local church disciple-making enterprise is evangelism. 
the essential importance of proclaiming the gospel by verbally sharing our faith with others at school, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. We don't mean conjoling or manipulating. We share our lives, what God's done. We share the goodness of the gospel, and we leave the results to God. But it is proclaiming it. See, in our cultural context, isn't it true both outside the church and within the church? Evangelism has tragically become the object of ridicule and indifference. And many of us, including myself, as I get busy with life, as a pastor, really fail to grasp on a moment-by-moment basis Jesus' teaching about heaven and hell. And what is at stake both temporally and eternally for those who do not, do not know Christ? Even more ironic to me is that non-believers sometimes have more insight into the integral nature of Christian faith and evangelism than we do. I was stunned in the Atlantic as a journal I read often. There was an article entitled, and it gets your attention as a pastor, Listening to Young Atheist. Here's some of what this article communicated. Uh, one person interview was Michael. He's an atheist political science major at Dartmouth. And this is what he said. I really can't consider a Christian a good moral person if he isn't or she isn't trying to convert me. Maybe you heard the very popular Penn Gillette. He's an atheist illusionist. And he echoes this sentiment. It was all over the web. Listen to what he says. I think I have a slide here. He says, he's an atheist. I don't respect people who don't proselytize. That word. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell, not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that truth? The angelic message to Mary and Mary at the empty tomb was what? Come and see Jesus and go and tell. And that's the mission of the church. Disciple-making enterprise involves both proclaiming the gospel to those who have not yet heard and making apprentices of Jesus for those who embrace the gospel. Jesus is saying, hey church, you're to be about this. <laughs> there is going, there is baptizing, and don't miss the progression of teaching. The third participle in this dynamic strategy of transformation. The word teaching, when you hear it, you know, Jesus says here, teaching them, a better translation to observe, it's not the whole, it's obey. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Circle all. Teaching them to obey everything I have taught. See, when we hear the word teaching, isn't it true we think of a classroom? <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm done with that. <clears throat> or someone conveying information to us. While conveying information is a part of teaching, that is not an understanding fully here what's going on. Jesus is saying that true teaching moves from merely conveying information to embodying that information through submission and obedience to Christ in all of life. Jesus will tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew highlights this, in the parable of the wise and foolish man, to hear something and not obey is to not know it at all. To know something and not do it is to not know it at all. It's not just information, it's transformation by obedience and submission to Jesus. Jesus understood that teaching through us 
to greater intimacy with him. It renewed our mind. It reordered our priorities. It rearranges the loves of our hearts. And it spiritually forms us into greater Christ-likeness in all dimensions of human life. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our friendships, our families, our marriages, our schools, our work, our play, everything. Teaching is aimed, or the church is teaching, at total life transformation and total buy-in to the risen king's new mission. Both are part of teaching. So going, baptizing, and teaching are the three uh, components of the local church's dynamic strategy. If we are going to make disciples, then the question is, are we disciples? Have we responded to Jesus' great invitation to become his apprentice? To come to Jesus and take his yoke and learn how to live your life like Jesus would if he were you. What Jesus requires from all who would enter his training yoke, his life of school transformation, is submission to him. As an apprentice of Jesus, we are invited to say goodbye to an old way of life and to say yes to the life Jesus has for us. Jesus' yoke is absolutely transformational. And it reminds us daily that it is not merely about trying harder to be a better Christian. That is disaster. It is learning to train better with him moment by moment. It's not about trying harder. It's about training better. That's the heart of discipleship. The gospel, properly understood, the gospel of grace, is opposed to any meritorious earning on our part. Period. But it is not opposed to our grateful effort and wholehearted obedience in response to it. Jesus said the mark, the mark of those who truly love him are those who wholeheartedly obey him. He doesn't mess around here. In Matthew's gospel, we hear, and hear me carefully. Still with me? In Matthew's gospel, we hear Jesus' words of the great commandment. That's where it builds, that we are to love God and our neighbor. Then we also hear the words of the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. But let me say something that is very, very, very important. Without the great invitation to enter Jesus' yoke, the great commandment to love God and neighbor is the great setup. And the great commission to make disciples is the great omission. Let me say that again. What I am saying, and Matthew builds this out, is that without being yoked to Jesus, we cannot love God and our neighbor as we ought. Neither can we make disciples as we were commanded to do. If we are not yoked to Jesus, the disciple-making enterprise of the church is fundamentally flawed and anemic. How can we lead others to become yoked apprentices of Jesus if we are not yoked to Jesus as his apprentice. This inconvenient truth is telling us we can't. This is why Dallas Willard, devoted follower of Jesus, the late Dallas Willard, who profoundly has shaped so many of our lives, professor of philosophy at USC, would often say to me and others in person that perhaps the greatest mission of the American church is not outside its walls, but within its walls, where intentional discipleship into Christ-likeness is hauntingly absent. 
Rightly, the cross of Christ is everywhere in the church as it ought to be. But my question to the American church is, what happened to the yoke of Jesus Christ? What happened to the yoke? Jesus' last recorded words in Matthew's gospel call us to embrace the risen Christ mission. And Jesus tells us this mission has three parts. First, we have a compelling purpose. What is that? To make disciples. Second, we have a dynamic strategy of going. That means our vocational faithfulness, a baptism. That means evangelism and teaching. That means spiritual formation. But isn't it wonderful that third, we have supernatural empowerment to do this? And this is where Jesus goes. This is how the gospel of Matthew ends. Listening to Jesus, my hunch is that the disciples were feeling a little overwhelmed, don't you think? Maybe you're feeling that now. They must have felt very inadequate for the task. Me too. This is why my heart is so encouraged by how risen King Jesus ends his great commission words. He tells them, I will always be with you. And notice, for those of you who love literary beauty, notice what Matthew does. If you remember our series, Matthew begins describing King Jesus in chapter 1 as Emmanuel, God with us, through the prophecy of Isaiah to Mary. This is God with us. And notice, if you would, how Matthew ends this book. In the very last verse, he brings back this theme of Emmanuel, and he says, Jesus Emmanuel is not only God with us, the resurrected Christ means that God is always with us. And here we see the glimpse of the promised risen king's abiding presence with us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And this is how the gospel ends. The writer Luke, who made, put together in one scroll actually, was divided, but Luke and Acts is really one book. And Luke gives us some more of Jesus' final words. And they are awesome. The gospel writer Luke in chapter 24 gives us more texture of what Jesus meant and what more he said when he said, I'm always going to be with you. I will never leave you. My presence will be with you every moment. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus again summarizes the core gospel of forgiveness and atonement and the mission to the nations. And then he says, I'm going to clothe you. I love that picture. That means from toe to head. I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. Little did these guys know what was a coming. Or should I say better, who was a coming? And why was the Holy Spirit coming? In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we hear more of Jesus' texture of this great commission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts captures not only the empowering of the Holy Spirit, but the building out of this mission of local churches being planted throughout the Roman Empire. And because of their faithfulness, we sit here today. What a mission. The risen king has given us. The empty tomb opens the door to a new world with a new community and a new mission and with supernatural empowerment. Where the gates of hell itself cannot stand up against the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. The gates of hell. That's what Jesus says. Now, that's a mission I want to be a part of. Questions come from this study of Matthew. 
as we wrap it. Have you embraced the eye-opening good news of the gospel? Have you heard the gospel freshly? Are you building your life on the truth of the gospel? Secondly, are you experiencing the transforming power of being yoked to Jesus as his apprentice and the power of the yoke of Christ? Third, are you wholeheartedly committed to the local church that's the primary focus of the New Testament as Jesus' greatest love and his primary disciple-making strategy to bring transformation to the world and storm the gates of hell. That's what Jesus teaches. Where are we in that? So whether you've been a part of Christ's community for a long time, you may be brand new, you may be visiting this morning. I am so glad you're here. Because this is core to who we are and why we exist. And whether you've been a part of Christ's community a long time or not, I want to encourage you to reaffirm your commitment to Christ, to be his apprentice, and a commitment to this local church that's on mission. And if you're newer to Christ's community, I've just asked you to consider joining us on the most amazing mission. In this decade of deployment at Christ Community, we have highlighted recently Reach KC, which is our mission of expanding disciples, churches, and leaders in our city and around the globe. For God's glory, and not for any of us here, we are seeing growing fruitfulness across our five campuses. Not that numbers are everything, but they point to fruitfulness. And last Sunday, let me just tell you that and I'm sure we miss some people, the census we crossed on our five campuses over 4,000 people that heard the gospel last Sunday. We have launched the Made to Flourish mission, and in just two years, our mission to multiply these churches and leaders for our nation has over 1,600 pastors a part of our network in just two years. We are touching Iran, other places. I'm just saying God has called us to a high stewardship of a mission. This afternoon, we will be breaking ground on our Olathe expansion. This is our second expansion. Olathe is growing really fast. Here's the deal. The empty tomb opens our eyes to a new world. It opens our hearts to a love that will never fail us. A life that never ends and work that really matters and a new mission. A disciple-making mission that summons our greatest thought, our most wholehearted devotion, our most fervent prayer, and our greatest sacrifice. I'm all in. How about you? Amen.